Hi, I'm Katie Allen. I'm a paediatrician turned politician, and I'm constantly asked why change from one of the world's most trusted professions to one of the least? The answer is simple. I want to get inside the tent to help make our future better. Along the way, I've met fascinating people and learned a lot about how the world works. I want to share some of that experience with you, and through my podcast, you'll meet some really interesting people who are helping solve the problems of the world. Reach out to me on socials to let me know who you want to hear from. Join me, Dr. Katie Allen, on An Apple A Week. Hopefully, you'll learn as much as I do. I'm delighted to welcome my guest, Trent Zimmerman, who is the former member for North Sydney, uh, to my podcast. Fantastic to have you uh, with me on this podcast today, Trent. Thanks for having me, Katie. It's exciting being here. Well, we've worked together over a number of years, so it's great to come and talk about two really big issues that I think are very, very exciting. Uh, the first is um, a celebration about marriage equality this month. Um, and then later on the podcast, I'd love to have a chat with you about an important legacy that you actually led, which was as the chair of the health committee, a bipartisan committee in parliament, you led what is now colloquially known as the Zimmerman Report. So first up, let's have a chat about marriage equality. This is a big month for marriage mm. equality. Why are we celebrating? Why is the LGBTI community excited about what's been achieved? Uh, well, I think all Australians are excited about what they achieved uh, through the postal survey that we had five years ago. And the 15th of November marks the fifth anniversary of when the uh, Australian Bureau of Statistics announced the results of that uh, voluntary postal survey, which showed 62% of Australians supporting the yes case. Uh, and then, of course, it was uh, less than a month later that we actually saw the amendments to the Marriage Act pass through the parliament and marriage equality became real and legal in Australia. Uh, and uh, that's hugely significant because uh, it, I think, showed where Australia is at in relation to a lot of these issues. But um, more importantly, for the individuals affected, uh, and there's been something like 25,000 same-sex marriages in the five years since, um, it's a really special moment, I think, for those that have been able to share their love like the rest of Australians have been able to do for so many years before. Well, it must have been a very deeply personal moment for you, Trent, because I know that you spoke about marriage equality in your first speech. Um, you had two terms as a federal member of parliament. Um, they're pretty you know, high impact terms. And um, in, in that first term to deliver something that's brought, as you said, so much joy and happiness to so many thousands here in Australia. Um, what was it like for you being the first openly gay Member of Parliament in the House of Representatives, and to be there at that historic moment in Parliament, inside the tent, as they say, making um, these decisions that are going to impact and have impacted so many lives. Um, well, it's a good question. I, I think, in a in a broader sense, um, I was always very conscious when I was elected that I was the the first in the lower house. There'd been openly gay uh, senators, uh, but never someone elected to the House of Representatives, and. Whilst obviously my primary duty was to be there as the representative of the people of North Sydney, uh, I was also conscious of the fact that uh, my election itself um, sent uh, a message of hope in some ways, I think, to the LGBTI community around Australia, that that, um, that you could be gay and be a member of the federal parliament elected 
uh, in a House of Representatives seat. Um, so, uh, so I was very conscious of that. And you're right, in my first speech, I talked about marriage equality as being something that I strongly believed had to happen. Um, but it was a pretty tough couple of years because uh, we faced uh, opposition from members of our own party room, um, quite deep opposition in many cases. Uh, it was an environment where we'd gone to an election promising a, a plebiscite. Uh, the legislation for that had been rejected, so there was no obvious pathway. Uh, and really working with a, a, a group of, of wonderful colleagues, uh, it fell on our shoulders really to keep pushing the case. Uh, and um, we were called the Rainbow Rebels at the time, but um, but it was it was a tough time personally because we were committed to achieving it. But it's obviously never easy, as you know, to um, to stand up to a prime minister, stand up to your own party, and that was that was difficult. Uh, and did you have you know great support within your electorate um, through this process? Um, you know, I know that there was a yes case and a no case and mm. there was concerns early on that if there was a no case that that may be harmful um, and there were sensitive issues but being in a party of where free speech is incredibly important uh, I've heard people say that because there's been a very good ventilation by the public of these issues at a very broad and general level and yes there can be sensitivities around the ventilation of those ideas people say that there's no way that it will be questioned and rolled back in the future, that it just has been properly debated and, and there's been a great democratic process around it. So, of course, people might be sensitive about some of the issues and, and we always mm. need to be aware of that. But what, what's your view on, you know, having a yes case and a no case, given that particularly as we move forward with other social issues such as the Indigenous voice to Parliament, um, there is discussions about do you have a yes and a no case and do you fund both? Because mm. I know that the uh, federal government did fund both cases I think, to an equivalent amount from memory. Uh, well, I think, um, firstly, just on that simple question, I think there has to be a yes and no case, so there's not accusations that you're, you're trying to guide or rip the, the process. But <coughs> um, overall, though, it was it was a double-edged sword, the whole postal um, ballot, if I can put it that way, or postal survey. Uh, I was opposed to using the postal survey, um, and I'll explain why, but fundamentally I felt... Um, that it should have been a free vote, like most of these issues have been before. Uh, it was obviously complicated by the election commitment that, uh, that Malcolm Turnbull took to support a plebiscite. Um, but fundamentally, it irked me that on an issue like this, it was the one occasion where Liberal and National Party members weren't being given a free vote. Um, I was opposed to the postal survey as I was in principle to a plebiscite, because I do think at the end of the day, these are issues that the Parliament is entrusted to resolve and should be able to resolve. Uh, it seemed very odd that we were delegating out responsibility for making a decision about the Marriage Act, the law of the land. Certainly wasn't when John Howard changed it uh, to exclude um, same-sex couples from being married. So um, so that's, that's what really irked me. Uh, I know there are many in the LGBTI community that um, were concerned about the impact on the community of having such an open debate. Uh, and it did impact people, there's no question about that. But overall, though, I, I do think that we have to recognise that this involves the change of the law, and whether it's being done by a parliament or it's being done by this process, you have to accept that there's going to be a, a public debate about, about that. Um, so, and at the end of the day, I actually think that whilst in concept I'm opposed to the postal survey, the fact that we got such a resounding result, I think has reshaped Australia, and uh, frankly, shown the parliament where their communities sit 
uh, sometimes um, in the face of perceptions that it may not have. There were plenty of my coalition colleagues that did not believe their electorates would vote yes uh, and was done when they did. And I think it was a message for the whole parliament. But I also think it was a message for the coalition because there were very few coalition seats that voted no. There was no state that voted no and no territory that voted no, obviously. So it was quite a powerful process and a, a wonderful affirmation that day five years ago when the results were declared by the head of the ABS after a long convoluted start. It was just a special moment because as a gay person, you felt the whole community is embracing you. And um, obviously it wasn't 100% result, but certainly the overwhelming majority were. So it was a great day. It's interesting. I um, certainly handed out for marriage equality for, you know, getting people to, to, to sign up to vote and to be participants of um, democracy. And and often I ask people when I was handing out, you know, you know, what are you going to vote? And some of them would say, look, our kids tell us that we've got to vote for this. And I'd say, well, you know, what do you think about it? Though? Well, who cares what your kids think in some ways? What do you think? And they'd say, well, you know, we actually think that you should be able to choose who you want to love. And I thought that's what I hear over and over again, that sort of freedom to choose who you wish to love. And um, I think that's been a really good outcome for Australia, as you say. Yeah. And look, fundamentally, that's what it was all about. Why should our laws treat the love that one person has for another differently based on, on their sex or sexuality? And Australians have a great sense of... Um, justice when it comes to these issues uh, and I think they knew it was time and I think they knew that it was was their brothers and sisters it was their friends it was their work colleagues that they saw being deprived of that wonderful opportunity to to share in this institution and a point that I made during the debate is that for those conservatives that were opposed to it, it was actually I think a mistaken judgment on their part because for years they've been concern about marriage declining as an institution and here you had such a big segment of the community actually knocking on the door wanting to join it I thought it was a great affirmation for marriage in our community. Yeah one of my constituents said to me I think everyone should have the right to be able to have the miserable have a miserable married life. So you know thank you for, um, for sharing you know, your views and your experiences on that. Um, and you've obviously had six years in the federal parliament, but I do now want to turn to the second area that, uh, you know, you've had a very important, um, you know, legacy, and that is in as chair of the Health Committee, which is a bipartisan yeah. parliamentary committee, which I was very fortunate enough to participate in, uh, along with another paediatrician, Mike Freelander, who is your deputy chair from Labor, and a whole host of fantastic other members. Uh, and it was a really interesting and great inquiry um, into health. And I was wondering whether you'd like to make some comments about the process for what, as I said, is now called the Zimmerman Report, I'm particularly interested in your views um, about you know the first three recommendations in particular. Uh, well, it was, I think, an important process for us, and I hope it has an enduring legacy for the way in which Australians are able to access medicines and technology. And really what drove the inquiry was, was firstly recognising that Australia, by international standards, has a very good system of supporting patients, but also recognising that uh, there is a whole wave of new technologies, new treatments, which are going to change for many um, illnesses and diseases and conditions, the way in which we treat patients. Uh, and it was basically making sure that our system was, was capable of coping with what are quite different, um, different ways of treating patients, from cancers to rare diseases uh, to the medical devices that we're using in our hospitals. And so we really wanted to make sure that all of those processes, the TGA, 
uh, the pharmaceutical benefits scheme, uh, the support we provided to medical technology, we're, we're ready for that for that new technology. And and partly driving it also, we want to make sure that uh, people with rare diseases, which affect millions of Australians, uh, but also um, we're having good access to the system, uh, and also making sure that the patient voice was central to everything that government was trying to achieve. So, for example, the first recommendation that we we looked at was one to establish a um, within the federal government an office of um, of precision medicine and rare diseases, uh, and that goes to the heart of this. It's basically making sure that government is equipped to to look at these new treatments, which incre increasingly will become personalised treatments, and that's. To give an example, the challenge for the existing system, the pharmaceutical benefits scheme, which provides cheap drugs to Australians, works on the basis of assessing a drug which might apply to a large cohort of people, in a rare disease case, a small cohort, but generally will be a drug that treats a disease um, across the spectrum. Um, we're moving to a system where you might actually have a treatment in precision medicine or genomics, for example, um, where you're actually have an individualised treatment that costs a couple of hundred thousand dollars. How does the system cope with that? Uh, and that's what we were really trying to get to during this process. Mm. And I thought what was really interesting is that the, um, the, the, the inquiry really identified that some of the new technologies, particularly cell, cell therapies and gene therapies and genetic testing, uh, are new forms of, you know, both uh, investigation, diagnosis and management, and that the um, system isn't really, you know, it wasn't set up with the view of dealing with these new therapies. And so one of the recommendations, as you said, was that there was a centre for precision medicine and rare diseases within the Department of Health, but that that centre should provide um, to advice to governments on the establishment of a de dedicated regulatory health technology assessment pathway for cell and gene therapies. And one thing we heard in the inquiry was that there is a very difficult uh, system to navigate. And that's partly because um, there, there's kind of a black box aspect to it. So sometimes things go in and it's hard to know what's going on inside that black box. But also the healthcare system in Australia is quite complex for people, um, patients, for clinicians, um, and even for companies to navigate. And we were certainly identified that, didn't we, in the inquiry. Yeah. So it's interesting with these new therapies coming at speed, particularly genetics and cell therapies, the opportunity to leapfrog ahead of other countries, I think, is there for the taking. Yeah. And, and look, I think that there's also good examples from overseas. And I know that uh, you were very keen on us looking at, uh, at NICE in the UK, and it led to... Uh, I think recommendation two or three, um, your advocacy on that. Um, but it's, look, it, it is a challenge um, how you repurpose the existing system to suit uh, new, new circumstances, but I certainly think it can be done and it has to be done. Um, but the other thing is I think also um, trying to ensure that Australia is getting at the forefront of getting access to new treatments uh, and also getting access to clinical trials. During the pandemic, Australia... Um, was a very popular destination for clinical trials because we had our, our ongoing um, high-quality scientists and researchers and health system that supports those. But obviously, in terms of the impact of the pandemic, uh, we were less devastated by some other nations. And it's how you lock that in because clinical trials are not just good in terms of developing our own research base, which is really important. But obviously, through clinical trials, you're talking about um, giving access to patients to drugs that may actually save their lives. And uh, that's that's vitally important as well. Yes, and, and I think that was what was clear through COVID and, and some of these inquiries done through COVID, that there is this sort of 
global health diplomacy that's going on around the world where people are accessing you know, healthcare professionals, medical researchers, administrators, government are accessing information from around the world. So that informal yeah. access of information, I think, is incredibly important. And as you said, I was very keen for us to ensure that there might be a formal way for what's called environmental scanning, understanding what's happening overseas and ensuring yeah. that we learn from others' mistakes and contribute ourselves to things that we learn and contribute back again. That is that sort of give and take information on a global level because what we found in COVID, it was, it was, it was moving so fast. Um, but then the development of new technologies has to move fast, I think, in many ways. So mm. there's opportunities for St Australia to both connect yeah. and other jurisdictions. And it is complicated because there's no template you can just simply pick up and adopt from overseas. Each, each country has a very unique system. Um, uh, the Europeans obviously do it differently to the Americans. I think the British do it very well. I think the Japanese do it very well. Um, the New Zealanders are probably the worst in the in the OECD in terms of the support that they provide to new drugs to come onto the markets. Um, but it's, so it's, it is trying to look at what other nations are doing better, uh, but then trying to mold that to fit within our existing system, because uh, I don't think realistically we're going to tear up the whole system and start from scratch. Uh, and that's overlaid, particularly when it comes to technologies that are deployed in the hospital setting um, with our wonderful federation which makes health a nightmare at the best of times, but certainly for a lot of a lot of these things, funding decisions, approvals and so on makes it even more complicated. So, um, so it is trying to navigate all of those factors uh, to make sure that at the end of the day, Australians are getting access to the best healthcare that they possibly can. And more of that, I mean, it's important, I suppose, because Australia is, is a unique um, ecosystem from a funding point of view and from a government support point of view, from ethics and a societal point of view. But even our genome um, is different. I mean, we have a very interesting mix of multiculturalism. We have, you know, the longest mm. surviving Indigenous culture uh, in this country. Um, and so even the genetic profile of our citizens is a different, you know, um, profile than other countries overseas. So doing research here on site in Australia is incredibly important um, and there's a lot to discover here with regards to new therapeutics, new precision medicine. Mm. Um, and, and what we did hear from, from, from people was that they felt that there was some really strong aspects of the Australian healthcare system, the private um, and the public, the private for innovation and the public for providing a safety net. But what did you think from the inquiry was kind of, one of the biggest standouts for you with regards to the inquiry? Oh, look, I, I think that uh, it is making sure, I mean, as you know, I'm particularly passionate about supporting people with rare diseases. Uh, and it's a difficult balance because you might be talking about uh, a massively expensive drug that's only going to treat um, a very small cohort of people. But at the end of the day, I still think that's really important. So, uh, so. Uh, whilst we have a very advanced healthcare system, whilst there is a high level of government and consumer spending, we are still quite a small market uh, compared to the giants of the US or Europe or um, or the bigger advanced nations, so or China for that matter. Uh, so it is it is a case of what you can actually proactively do to make sure that um, that therapies, drugs, devices that are going to treat people that um, where there's a small population base because of their rarity are still going to come to Australia. Uh, for example, um, what, why would a company go through an expensive PBS listing process if there's only um, 100 patients at the end of that process that the drug's going to be available to? It's actually how we support people with rare diseases during that type of 
that type of process, which I think is really important. But I suppose the the, the other thing which I'd, I'd say is, is that what this inquiry highlighted in my own mind is what a revolution is coming down the pipeline in relation to the treatment of many diseases that have eluded um, really across the board effectiveness in terms of their therapies. And cancers are, are obviously the most ex dramatic example of that, where we are going to see, I think, uh, a dramatic change in the way in which we we are already seeing, but we'll continue to see a dramatic change in the way in which we treat cancers, for example. And we certainly heard um, from a big sector um, about interesting um, better prevention as well. And I mm. think that's where newborn screening um, advocacy came in about how can we better identify children early um, at risk of rare diseases that can have interventions early that ensure yeah. that they have a better quality of life or they have a, a, even a cure in some instances. And for pharmaceutical companies to be able to identify these patients early and then have a bespoke medicine that, that can be very costly but also can save lives. And what was interesting with newborn screening is the push to move from a metabolomic approach to a genetic approach. Um, but that opens mm. up a whole new area for society to grapple with about how do we um, maintain the data that should be an individual's data? When can they when should they be able to access that data? You know, is it as a newborn or is it as an adult when they can be informed in their consent? Should they have access to information that can um, result in intervention? Obviously they should, but if it's not going to result in intervention, when should they be able to have access to the information? And then who pays for that information? Uh, these are big mm. questions that um, personally I think government actually needs to wrangle with because uh, those questions are coming at speed. Yeah. And, and it was a huge benefit having our two resident paediatricians, you and Dr. Freelander, on the committee to explore some of these. But, but look, obviously, a starting point for us was actually trying to create some uh, universality across our federation in relation to newborn screening. And it doesn't make much sense that a, a baby born in South Australia might have different screenings as one born in New South Wales, for example. So, so that's the base level. But then there are obviously the more substantial issues that you're talking about as well, which we have to grapple with. Hmm. So, um, you know, just with regards to the future, I like to, with my podcast, talk about, you know, what uh, leaders of today feel about the future of tomorrow. Um, if you were mm -hmm. to sort of fast forward um, 100 years, where do you think the future for Australia will be? And we've, we've covered two topics, so you can choose whichever one you want with regards to health or social issues. Uh, well, choose a different one. I, I think in 100 years' time, Australia will hopefully be a powerhouse for um, renewable energy around the world and that we'll be powering uh, not only ourselves but other parts of the world with our incredible uh, renewable resources like solar and wind that we have in Australia uh, and uh, and also by that stage have a very advanced hydrogen industry which is supporting that as well. I think that they're the jobs, the exciting jobs of, and the combination of the great global challenge but also the great opportunity Australia has if we use our wherewithal correctly and uh, I reckon that Australia can be, as Ross Garner would say, a superpower in relation to uh, the new energy sources that we're going to need to prevent climate change, but also provide us with that sustainable resource. And that's what I hope and I'm excited about in terms of Australia's prospects. Well, thank you, Trent. You've given an advert for my um, an upcoming guest I have, the former Chief Scientist 
Professor Ellen Finkel, who, as you know, has been quoted saying we should be able to ship our sunshine, hard to say that, ship our sunshine overseas. <laughs> don't do it after a few drinks. I know you don't drink, Katie, so you're safe. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so I, I agree with you. I think that, that uh, there's obviously a lot of difficulty in getting there, but I think that is a vision that's a great vision for Australia. So thank yeah. you so much. And I look forward to hearing Dr Finkel, one of our great national treasures. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Trent. Wonderful to speak with you. As you are. Thanks for having me, Katie. Thank you. Reach out to me on socials to let me know who you want to hear from. Join me, Dr. Katie Allen, on An Apple a Week. Hopefully, you'll learn as much as I do.